This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. This morning's reading of God's holy word from the Old Testament comes from Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And then, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around, you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it. This morning's reading from the New Testament and where the sermon will be from this morning is Hebrews chapter 8, if you would turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent That the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Good morning. There are way more people here than I expected. That's awesome. <laughs> you never know what to expect on days like this. I know it's cold and snowy and there's the dangers of slipping. So uh, just thankful that we're here and have the opportunity to worship the Lord together. Um, if you do have your Bible open to Hebrews 8, we'll be looking at those 13 verses there as we continue our study. But just before we dive in, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, we're thankful, Lord, that we can come into your house, we can sit under your word, that we can be in your presence, and that, Lord, we know that you will speak to us. You are a God who is not silent. You have told us through your word what it is you desire of us. And even though we fail, you have made a provision through your Son. Lord, that is just mind-blowing to understand the way in which you love us, the depths to which you go to truly care for us. You not only created us, you not only sustain us, but you have redeemed us. And Lord, we are thankful for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful for the hope that Jesus and Jesus Christ alone provides. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be fixed upon him. Lord, we pray for those in our midst, Lord, that are in need. We know there are physical needs and emotional needs and spiritual needs. And we know that Christ is the answer to them all. And Lord, we thank you for the proof of the power of Christ and the resurrection. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the assurance that we are forgiven because of that resurrection. We're thankful for the Son who has ascended to the Father and sits right hand in making intercession for us. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who has come and indwelling us, convicting us, empowering us, changing us. And we pray for that this morning. We pray that we would be changed. We would be made more and more into the image of the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would use my words, that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say, but God, that I would be faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. This past Monday, 
most of us watched as Michigan won the national championship. They beat Washington Huskies by a score of 34 to 13. That win marked a perfect football season. A season filled with key victories over groups such as Penn State, Michigan State, Ohio State, Iowa, Alabama. It was an amazing season. In the passing interviews after the national championship game, no matter who was being interviewed, no matter that it was the coach, Jim Harbaugh himself, or his parents, or even the various Michigan football players, there was a catchphrase. It was really a catch question. And that catchphrase was this, who has it better than us? The answer, nobody. See, that is the phrase that Jim's dad used with his sons, both John and Jim. Whether they were shoveling snow or walking to school due to a flat tire or any other situation in life, no matter what they were doing, no matter what the situation brought them, their father would ask, who has it better than us? To which the boys would respond, nobody. Nobody has it better than us. Yet church, I ask you about the importance of this phrase as I believe it's fine as its truest meaning for us, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. See, it's more true for us than a team or a coach, even with a perfect season or a national championship. As a New Testament believer in Christ, we can truly ask, who has it better than us? And the answer, nobody. Nobody has it better than us. This is the very point the writer of Hebrews has been conveying again and again and again. We have it better than everyone. As a young child in Sunday school, I used to think about how much better Abraham or Moses had it. In fact, I could find myself at times actually being jealous of them and their experiences. The Sunday school teachers would put the flannel graphs up and, and they would tell the story and I found myself as being envious of, of these individuals from the past. But the truth was, I was missing it. I was missing it just like the Hebrew Christians that our Bible text is addressing. I was missing how much better we have it than they did. I was missing the point that the writer of Hebrews is conveying. Who has it better than us? Nobody. Nobody has it better than us. You see, up to now in our text, the seven preceding chapters, we've seen how Jesus is better than angels, how Jesus is better than Moses, how Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. And now in chapter 8, the author shares his point regarding all of this. Look at verse 1. He says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. That's the point. We have such a high priest. Notice that we now presently have such a high priest. The writer of Hebrews, who just literally finished comparing the priesthood of Christ with Melchizedek in chapter 7, he explained that Christ's priesthood is not built on a lineage but is appointed by an oath. That Christ's priesthood is without end. That Christ's priesthood is greater than all the other priesthoods. 
That Christ's priesthood offers a complete and a better sacrifice. That Christ's priesthood is rooted in power that actually enables us to draw near to God. In chapter 7, that's what the writer of Hebrews has been saying. See, Jesus is a better high priest. It's because of who he is. And for comparison, the writer took us to the Levites. The Levites were never permanent, but they were replaced at their death by a lineage of others. For comparison, he gave us Jesus compared to the Levites and what they offered. The Levites would offer sacrifices again and again for their sins and for the sins of the people. The Levites weren't able to make it possible for the people to truly draw near to God. There was the outer court for women and Gentiles. There was the inner court for men. But it was only the priest himself who was allowed into the holy place. In fact, there was a curtain of separation. And even this, the priest only did once a year. The point is this. Because of Jesus, the better high priest, because of who he is, everyone who is in him has it better. That's the point. Remember what the writer said in Hebrews 5.1. He said, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The key point of all that is that because we have a priest who represents us before God, the better the priest, the better we have it. And the good news is, we have the best priest of all. We have the perfect high priest. We have Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews would say, who has it better than us? Nobody. Nobody has it better than us. In making his point, in drawing us to, to the attention of this, he draws the point of how we have it better because of the ministry of Jesus Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, We have one who is seated at the right hand on the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that is the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. In this section of reading, we, we see that we have it better because we have a better high priest. And that is because his ministry is better. And the first reason is because look where his better location, the better location of Jesus' ministry. In verse 1 it says, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, majesty in heaven. Look where he's seated. Jesus' ministry is seated in heaven. It's at the right hand of the throne of God. According to verse 2, we have a minister who ministers in the holy places. It's described as the true tent that the Lord sets up, not man. Interesting enough, you skip down to verse 4, and it makes an interesting statement. It says, now if he, meaning this Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. What are they saying, that his ministry really isn't better? No, in fact, they're saying it is better because if he were on earth, he wouldn't be able to serve because he would be just like all the other men. 
but his ministry is not. And therefore, because he doesn't come from the tribe of Levi, but of Judah, because he's not appointed through a lineage, but through an oath, because his is eternal and not replaceable, his ministry is better. And the proof of this is where he sits, in heaven. See, yet where Jesus does minister is far better. Jesus serves from the true tent, the holy places, places set up by the Lord. Whereas these Levites here on earth, they served in a tabernacle, in a temple made by men's hands. The place where the Levites served was a shadow of heaven. Verse 5 goes on to explain this. It says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do it exactly. Everything was to be made just as God commanded. And in Exodus 39, when they had finished making all the utensils, all the instruments, all the cloths, all the attire, after they had made everything, in Exodus 39, what do we see? We see this repeated phrase for each article. It was made according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And then what did they do? They brought it all to Moses so he could inspect it. To make sure it was made just as God had commanded him. And why was this so important? Of course it's important because God commanded it. But what was God doing with it? God was making a picture of heaven here on earth. But understand, it was just a tent. It was made by the hands of men. It wasn't heaven itself. And where is Jesus ministering? Not in a tent made by hands, but in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. That's why Jesus' ministry is better. Look where he ministers from. And regarding this better ministry of Jesus, Notice the gifts and the sacrifices that Jesus offers. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. These gifts and sacrifices Jesus offered are himself. Therefore, because he is perfect, his sacrifices, his gifts were perfect. It's better. Better for us. Compare that to the gifts and the services and the sacrifices of the Levites. They repeatedly had to offer animal sacrifices, not their own selves because they themselves were sinners, but they offered animal sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. And they did this again and again and again, but not Jesus. Once for all time, he offers himself. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9.12. He says he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The idea here is the better blood of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is established by the better blood of Jesus. So again we ask, who has it better than us? Nobody. Nobody has it better than us. And see, while we're exploring the better ministry of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews would highlight the better covenant that Jesus establishes. 
We have it better because of a better covenant. Look at verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as a covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on a better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Here we see a comparison of a better ministry and a better covenant. The ministry mediated by Christ is better than the ministry of the Levites for all the previous reasons already given. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, the covenant Jesus mediates is better. It's enacted upon better promises. The first covenant was not faultless. Therefore, we needed a new covenant. To understand this, we need to take a step back. We understand, first of all, that covenant is a key word in the Bible. It means literally promise. It means agreement. It's a bond in blood. In the Bible, there are two major covenants. There is the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden before the fall. And then there is the covenant of grace established after the fall. And yet the covenant of grace has at least, in a sense, two aspects. There's what is referred to as the old covenant of grace. And that's what's mentioned here as the writer of Hebrews writes. The old covenant of grace versus the new covenant of grace. See, in the old covenant of grace, there was forgiveness of sins, but it came through animals shedding their blood as it pointed forward. This old covenant of grace is seen in the Levitical priesthood ministry. Yet the new covenant of grace is seen in the once offering of Jesus and his blood in his ministry. So when we use the term new, we understand that the writer of Hebrews doesn't mean brand new, in the sense of totally different, what he means is better, greater, pure. See, after the sin of Adam and Eve, the covenant of grace was established there in the garden. There in the midst of their sin, God showed grace. There was a promise of a Messiah who would deliver them. The covenant of grace was administered through various covenants, through Noah and Abraham, Moses and David, all these offered shadows and types pointing to the longing of a later new covenant who would be fulfilled in the Messiah. In our text, the focal point of the old covenant is the area of the Mosaic covenant of grace under Moses. It's under that that we see the institution of the Levitical priesthood. And it's in that that we see a covering of sin by animal sacrifices. And it's this, it's this one that Jesus' ministry is greater than, better than. It's Jesus' ministry compared to that ministry of the priest. The old Mosaic covenant is in contrast to the new covenant. A new covenant in which the prophets foretold which included a promise of restoration to sinful, cut-off, exiled people. A promise that would be fulfilled by the ministry of a coming Messiah. And that's where the writer of Hebrews keys in on one particular Old Testament passage. Which is it? 
Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He places the Old Testament prophets right here in the midst of talking about something new, something better. This is where the writer of Hebrews draws our attention. To understand this, the, the writer here is pointing us back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He is writing to the people and he has to confront them with their sin. He has to tell them of the consequence of their sin. Because of their rebellion, they would be cut off. First, it happened to Israel. In 722, because of their sin, they were sent out, exiled from the promised land. Later in 586, the same thing would happen to the Judah, the southern tribe, because of their rebellion. But in the midst of that, are just a few short chapters of hope. The weeping prophet gets to offer hope to a people who have been rebellious. And right smack in the middle of those chapters, we find Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And we read these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write them in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See, this is the point the writer of Hebrews would draw us to. This is why Jesus' ministry is better they had the priests. They had the sacrifices. But yet it ultimately, it still cost them. Exile, being cut off, being pushed away from the land. But there was a promise of one who would come and restore all things. This new covenant would not be like the covenant that he had made with their fathers. This new covenant is different. It's not a shadow or a type pointing to the one who would come. He did come and it was unbreakable. He would write the law not on stone, but in their hearts. He would be their God and they would be his people. He would never cast them away again. They shall not need someone to teach them. They shall not need preachers or teachers. They shall not need someone to point them because they shall all know him from the least to the greatest because of the work of the Spirit in their life. And notice this. He will be merciful to their iniquities. He'll be merciful to their sin. He will remember their sin no more. Once for all, all their sins are done away with. This is the new covenant that Jesus Christ has established by his blood in his death. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 6. He says, but when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And get this, because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the picture of adoption. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. It's the picture of forgiveness, their sins taken care of. It's the picture of an everlasting covenant. It's a picture of the fact that the law will no longer have consequence over us because of what Christ has done. This makes the old obsolete. The new is better. Draw your attention to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already vanishing away. Notice the key words there, obsolete. That word is used in the Hebrew as well as the Greek for the idea of a crumbling temple. That same word is used for a wall that needs repair, a wall that's breaking down. It's obsolete. It's not useful anymore. And yet what we see is we see the right, those being written to in Hebrews are running back to the old way. They're missing the point that it's obsolete. They don't need the sacrifices. They don't need the temple. They have Jesus. The old is vanishing away. Utter destruction to it. But something better has come. We don't need to seek to fulfill old covenant obligations. The old covenant of grace finds its fulfillment in the new Messiah's ministry. The new covenant of grace is inaugurated at Christ's coming. That's the beauty. And so therefore, here's the point. Christ's ministry in the new covenant is better. Here's why. As David McWilliams puts it, Christ provides a once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. By his blood, you're healed. He continues, Christ appears in heaven. Therefore, by union with him, we are represented in heaven. Christ has taken his seat in the heavenly kingdom, not made with human hands. It's different. It's a different kind of ministry. Christ is faithfully there, interceding for his people with an intercession that will not fail. When you cry out, he hears you. By Christ's ministry of intercession, we are protected from all Satan's accusations. Praise God. By Christ's ministry of intercession, we are delivered from temptation. And by Christ's ministry of intercession, we continue to grow and change. We become more like him. And by Christ's ministry of intercession, we have peace with God. By Christ's ministry of intercession, our service is actually made acceptable to God. By Christ's ministry of intercession, our prayers are presented perfect. Perfect prayers to the Father. When's the last time you felt like you prayed a perfect prayer? But Jesus takes it, and he makes it perfect. Church, do you see it? Do you see why it's so much better? So we ask, who has it better than us? Nobody. Nobody has it better than us. Because of Christ, because of his ministry, 
because of the inauguration of the new covenant, we can actually say that nobody has it better than us. Praise God for the ministry of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus. We're thankful for the ministry of Jesus. We're thankful for the covenant that Christ inaugurates by his own blood. We're thankful for the hope we have in our Savior. Thank you for loving us so well. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.